My guest for this episode of TES Podagogy is Dr. Catherine Asbury, lecturer in psychology in education at the University of York and one of the UK's leading researchers into the relevance of genetics to education. And that is our topic today. Catherine, welcome. Thank you for having me. So people will already be getting nervous that we're talking about genetics and education in the same sentence. Yeah. Where do you think that nervousness comes from? I know, I know we've had several high profile Sort of articles and discussions about genetics and education over the past year, but in general, why do people get nervous when we talk about it? I have some sympathy, to be honest, for people getting nervous around this topic. Um, genetic research generally has a difficult historical past that mm. culminated in World War II at the end of the eugenics movement, and thankfully that brought the eugenics movement to an end. But I think that, that behavioral genetic research generally was tarnished by that mm. and that people worry that if we take genetics into account in thinking about human how human beings behave and in particular how children learn and develop, then people worry that that's going to lead to a situation in which we discriminate against the less able or those who are weaker or disadvantaged in society for any reason. So I think the problem is not the research but fears about how it might be used. Mm. And I do, I do have sympathy for that, and I think we have a duty to reassure people that that's not why we do this research. That's not the purpose of twin studies or adoption studies or behavioral genetic research in general. And you've been on the, um, the twin study with Robert Plyman for 16 years, I think we were discussing earlier. In that time, have you seen that nervousness shift? Have people become more nervous, less nervous? Does it go in cycles? or? Is it pretty consistent people are a bit wary of the topic? It's a really funny mix. So if you write an article in a newspaper or read an article on this topic in a newspaper and then look at the comments underneath, you will see a great deal of nervousness. But when we research this more systematically, um, so there was a, the, the twin study you mentioned is TEDS, and a few years ago there was a paper that looked at teachers' views of um, the role of genetics in influencing how children learn. And I have a PhD student, Madeline Crossway, doing something similar at the moment. And teachers are actually really open to the ideas. So when it's kind of put objectively to them, um, they can see it makes sense. Mm. Um, they, th uh, teachers accept that um, our genetic, uh, that genetic factors influence the behavior that they see in the classroom. But there is this, still this worry about actually using that information. As mm. I say, the worry is not about the research, it's about how it might be used. And you wrote an interesting piece for um, Tez in the uh, aftermath, if you want to call it that, of the, of the Toby Young article that was pulled mm -hmm. from Teach First, saying that we do need to have this conversation about genetics and education. It, it's one that is necessary. Do you yes. want to talk a bit more about why that, why that conversation is important? Yeah. I'll, I think it's for two main reasons. So the first reason is that everything is heritable. So everything a child is doing in a classroom from learning to read, learning to do science, how they're playing with other children, how they're communicating with their teachers, their mental health and well-being is influenced by their genes. And so when something is such a central part of who children are and how they behave and therefore how we plan to meet their needs, it seems a bit bonkers not to talk mm. about it. There's nothing else that we wouldn't include in the conversation if it was that central to what was actually happening. 
So that's the first and main reason. It's kind of a no-brainer. We've got this robust, replicated, reliable research that's been around for decades and decades and decades. And it seems silly to ignore it and pretend that it's not there. Um, we need to think about what it means. So that's one reason for having the conversation. The other reason is that there are developments in molecular genetic research at the moment. So scientists are increasingly finding genetic variants of very tiny, tiny effect that are associated with aspects of learning and aspects of education. And they're combining those genetic variants of tiny effect in what's known as genome-wide polygenic scores. It's a mouthful. <laughs> it is a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> I'm glad I said it properly. Yeah, you did very well, yeah. Um, and I think what we will see over the coming five years or so is genome-wide polygenic scores that can explain a good chunk of the differences between children in aspects of their education and aspects of their learning. And so I think it's really important to prepare for that, to think, okay, if we're gonna have this information, some people are gonna want to use it, is that okay? Do we want to use it? How should we use it? How can we make it safe? How can we make sure that it's used for good purposes to benefit the children in our schools? So I think for those two reasons, one, it's a no-brainer, it's important, so we should do it. And two, I think we have to prepare for a future where, it's, where there's more capacity for applying the research than there currently is. So you might have in the future an EYFS intake where on the on the home visit you get handed this, this score which I'm not going to try and pronounce myself but um, <laughs> we call it GPS GPS this GPS score of, of a child that that's a foreseeable future well I don't know but what what I do know is the research is developing these genome-wide polygenic scores these mm. GPSs and I don't know how they'll be used I don't I don't know, and that's a decision that society will take or individuals will take. Even that we don't know. So there are ethical, legal, regulatory issues that need to be seriously considered. Otherwise, we'll kind of be hit with a situation where a commercial company is using them and offering them to some people and they're being used in ways that might be useful and might not. So I think we need to discuss, we need to prepare. But, I, but I'm not making predictions about <laughs> when, when that will happen. Is that similar to the, the Silicon Valley companies grow, uh, emerging now where you can send off quite a substantial sum of money and get your, your genome mapped back? Or is this, is this, this is different? <laughs> well, it is different. So you can write to a, co well, you, you can spit in a tube and send yeah. it off to a company like 23andMe yeah, 23 um, and they will tell you your risk of things that range from liking asparagus right through to <laughs> having Alzheimer's. So okay. all curly hair, all sorts of things are, wow. are in there. Um, and it will tell you whether your risk is slightly higher than average, slightly lower than average, bang on average. So it's a kind of a probabilistic risk indicator rather than this is what you're gonna be like. Mm -hmm. um, and that's all this kind of research can ever offer. It's probabilistic risk. It's um, it's not deterministic in any way. Um, this, I don't know. I genuinely don't know how it will play out, but I know the research is happening. It's good research and it's moving faster than I thought it would. So I think from a social point of view, we just need to prepare for it, for it continuing to move fast and as having the potential to have that information for children. And is it about not just genetics, 
to having a discussion about genetics and education, but educating about genetics as well. I mean, there's you know this this development if it happens is is already like fraught with problems because people don't fully understand the terminology around genetics. I mean, do you want to talk through some of the the, the common misconceptions? I mean, the main one perhaps is heritability. Yes, I think that's a word that people commonly misunderstand and I think it underpins some of the hostility that we do see to genetic research. So I think people sometimes think that if we say, I don't know, think of any aspect of behaviour, shyness. If we say that shyness is 50% heritable, that what we're saying is that how shy I am is 50% explained by my genes or how shy you are is 50% explained mm. by your genes and actually this kind of research isn't talking about individuals so heritability is a population statistic it's about individual differences so if we take a large group of people and plot their shyness scores on a, a kind of bell curve um, then what heritability tells us is the extent to which those differences between people are explained by differences in their genes. Mm -hmm. So, and we and we do know that whilst I mentioned um, my PhD student Madeline's study, which found that teachers are very open to further training and CPD in genetics, they see this as an important area, but also that their knowledge is very low. Mm -hmm. They haven't been taught this information. So, and something like that is that where, in terms of the miscommunication around the research. Is there, you know, how much more could you do as a research community to make that explicit and how much needs to be actually, that's not part of our job, that education bit, that, that's something that other people are going to have to address? I think, I see it as a really important part of my job. Mm -hmm. So when Robert Plowman and I wrote G is for Genes, it was for that purpose. We wrote it for teachers and parents to try and explain what we know, what, mm -hmm. what the research has shown. And I know certainly at York, I recently spoke to our PGCE students. Um, I think we could do more. Um, we, we, we take the opportunities that come our way to speak about genetics to um, non-academic audiences and in particular to teachers. Um, as I say, G is for Genes was a proactive attempt to try and do that. Mm. But I'm sure there's more that we can do. And whether that's through CPD or um, information online or more work in the media I'm not sure but I think we probably can do more and moving on to sort of the, the research body itself another thing you mentioned in that that Tez article which we'll, we'll link to from this podcast was how whenever anyone talks about genetics and education intelligence is the first port of call and and more often not the only port of call that anyone explores and you are talking about well actually there's a lot more broader impacts of genetics on on education a lot more things we should consider I do you want to run through some of those other aspects of the intelligence sure so all research whether it's genetically informed or not finds that cognitive ability is a really strong predictor of how well um, children achieve in school um, possibly the strongest predictor but the research also finds that factors like motivation self-efficacy, how good you think you are at a subject, what's going on at home, the school environment, behaviour problems are all predictive of achievement as well. And those things correlate with each other. So it's a very complex situation where you've got multiple behaviours interacting with each other and informing how well a child does at the end of the day. 
So some of my colleagues on the TED study, um, Kylie Rimfeld and Eva Krappel and the team, um, looked at GCSE results in the UK a couple of years ago, I think, and found that they had nine variables, including the ones I've mentioned, and they were all predictive of GCSE achievement. And some of those links between the behavior, whether that was self-efficacy or intelligence and achievement were the links were caused by genetic influence as well. There were similar genetic, um, genetic factors influencing both things, the achievement and the predictor. How interesting. So people can sort of understand why uh, intelligence might be genetically influenced, but they might struggle with motivation and behavior and self-efficacy. Why do you think that might be? I'm not sure, because if you think about it from a parenting point of view, um, there, there's a a sort of a commonplace saying that psychologists all believe in the priority of nurture until they have their second child. <laughs> and then they think, hang on a minute, I treated them maybe differently, but not that differently. Yeah, yeah. And if you think about um, tiny babies, you can see evidence of different temperaments from the day they're born, mm. actually much earlier than you're likely to see evidence of different cognitive capabilities. That tends to show a little bit later. So. I'm not sure why. I suspect it maybe it's something to do with the experience of finding things difficult or easy at school. Mm. And maybe, I think, in anecdotally, it's not unusual to hear people say, I'm not a maths person. I could never do maths. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not clever enough to do physics. Yeah. Um, it's the sort of thing that people say. So I think maybe because it's an accepted part of conversation and a way of speaking about ourselves, maybe that feels different. Whereas for something like personality, it's more possible, I guess, to weave a story about yourself that maybe I'd be a bit more outgoing if I hadn't been bullied in year six. Or mm. So maybe it's that, but I'm speculating wildly. I don't actually know. That's interesting, isn't it? Because we do, as you say, we do talk about, you know, oh, I'm not as bright as that person. It's part of our common language. Mm. And we, we tend to see that as, as a, a preset, if you like. Whereas with engagement or with motivation or with self-efficacy, we see that much, it's much more fluid, I guess. So yeah. maybe it's just a language problem in education. And yes, it could be. A group of language. Um, so and when we're talking about these, these factors and we're saying some of them can be genetically influenced, how, you know, what does that actually mean and how, how much sort of fluidity is, is, can you move from, from those sort of influences? Okay. Um, well, the first thing to say would be that they're all genetically influenced. Mm. Um, there's a, a professor in the States called Eric Turkheimer who's come up with four laws of behavioral genetics. And the first law is that everything is heritable. Okay. And that seems to hold pretty much yeah. as a law. So they're all genetically influenced to greater or lesser degrees, but often between the what you would say is uh, heritability estimates seem to range between about 40 to 60% mm -hmm. on average, so around that 50% mark. Um, what does it mean is a, a harder question because it certainly doesn't mean that you can't change something about yourself. So um, I'm five foot four and height is one of our most heritable human characteristics. The um, heritability estimate is closer to 90%. Wow, okay. Um, but I can wear heels, I can make myself appear taller, I can mm. do things to change the effect of my genes and make me different. So one of the things we commonly say is our 
genetic influence is about what is, but not about what can be. We also know that um, vision is highly heritable, but you can wear glasses, you can correct any effect of having, having poor vision. So what we know from a heritability estimate is that genetic factors matter. There are biological reasons why some children, for example, find it harder to learn or to make friends or to read or do maths than others. Um, and that maybe for that reason, for that biological reason, um, there are children who need extra help. So we're very comfortable with saying that for social reasons, um, some children need extra help. Mm. If, for instance, they're eligible for free school meals, they've got English as additional language, they've got a statement of special educational needs, but we're much less comfortable and we're not in a position to do it yet. But it's worth thinking about if that changed, would it be okay to say, okay, for biological reasons, this child has a higher probability of finding reading difficult than other children. So shall we go in with early intervention? Shall we have extra support from the beginning in exactly the same way that we currently do for environmental reasons? Mm. And I guess when you start thinking about it, you get into ethical yeah. issues and you get into problems of what's happened in the five years before school that might have already compensated, mm -hmm. is if that's the right word, yes. you know, already perhaps addressed some of the, that intervention need. Um, I guess there's no right answer to that at the moment. No, and it's, it's why I think these are discussions that we need to have. If we have that information, how can we use it? Does it mean we go in at nursery? Do we go in much earlier for, mm. for children who have a high risk of experiencing difficulty? Is there a possibility that at some point in the future we can minimise the effect of difficulties to the extent that they don't really become difficulties in the classroom because we've addressed them early enough? So, I don't know. As I say, what heritability tells us is that some children are at higher risk of finding things difficult than others. And what the environmental influence on the same behaviours means is that maybe there's something we can do about that that we're not already doing. Is there anything in the research at the moment, I mean, common sense would say earlier, the earlier the intervention, the better. Mm -hmm. I guess we used to say that about quite a lot of things and um, some of the research from Sarah Jane Blakemore suggested that, you know, actually it's never you know you can make interventions later and make an impact but on on something as sort of um potentially in the future easily recognizable at an early age well from birth presumably would you think that in the future early intervention would make more sense i think i think there are a couple of things so i think in the past um there was a belief that there was this neuroplastic period before children went to school in which if you were going to change things, you needed to change it then. Mm. I think now we understand that development continues into early adulthood. And so the window for intervention and change and making a difference is much, much wider than we thought it was. Um, that said, the preschool years are, I think, probably the optimal time to intervene or to start that process of intervention for any child who's at risk of difficulty. And maybe it depends a little bit what they're at risk of difficulty of. So if the, if the difficulty is with reading, well, it's very hard to access most of education or the curriculum if, you, if you're going to struggle with reading. And so early intervention makes a great deal of sense there. 
whereas there are other problems that are more likely to manifest in adolescence, let's say issues around mental health and maybe intervention later is more appropriate there. So I think you would need to take quite a nuanced approach depending on what you were trying to predict. And from, from what you're saying, there's going to be a, uh, if, if these, if these uh, GPS do, do come into being, there's going to be quite a big period of, of getting to know what that means for education and some trial and error potentially that that may do damage before it does good. Yeah, this and really worries me because I think the time to get used to it is now while it's so while it's a research project mm. and while it's happening in science rather than in the real world, if we only start getting used to it at the point where it has some application in the real world and some people are using it, then yes, there'll be a lot more trial and error than is necessary if we really think it through now. And will it necessarily mean that teachers have to become sort of junior PhD students of yours to sort of fully understand the capability or do you foresee a time, I think you've used the phrase, uh, genetically sensitive schools where a teacher would need to know enough about what it means? Yeah, um, no I don't think teachers need to be PhD students unless they want to in which <laughs> case they're very welcome. What, what, what I think is that teachers and everybody needs to know the basics. Mm. It's important to understand why there are differences between, between us. Um, that said, at the moment, I think the only application of behavioral genetic research is that it adds extra weight to those who argue that we need to nurture individual differences better in our classrooms. We need to treat children as individuals rather than as a group. And we need to focus on maybe, um, I would say, those at the extremes, particularly the low extreme, and trying to narrow the gap rather than necessarily boosting the average. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's what it tells us, that we need to nurture individual differences. If we reach a stage where um, something like a genome-wide polygenic score is used as a predictor of ability, then again, teachers don't need any particular expertise because it's actually no different to using eligibility for free school meals as a predictor of mm. whether a child will need extra support. So no, I think we need understanding, um, but at a reasonably basic level, um, teachers don't need to be researchers for any of this. Do you think when, when you're talking about um you knowing, for example, that a child is eligible for free school meals and knowing in the equivalent being known the GPS score. Is there anything to suggest from, from your research or in that research body what appropriate interventions might be? Or is that where you sort of hand it over to the educated, you know, the, the sort of more intervention based, pedagogy based researchers and say, okay, we know this child needs help. What's the best, what's the best solution for children who need help with literacy? Yes, I would hand it over at that stage. And also it might not be that it's a specialist intervention. Teachers and intervention researchers already know what works well to a large extent for a child who's struggling with reading or maths, let's say. Um, and so it might just be a case of extending that intervention to some children who are not currently included. My understanding is that um, using indices like free school meals um, successfully identifies two-thirds of the children 
who are likely to underperform at GCSE, um, which means we're missing a third. So mm -hmm. none of our current indices are identifying a third of children who are at risk of failure. And maybe that's somewhere where um, some kind of genetic prediction might in the future be able to help. It's not unreasonable that they, there might be children who are not eligible for free school meals, but for biological reasons find learning difficult, more difficult than their peers, and that those children might currently be being missed um, and opportunities for intervention extended to them might be really valuable. And I guess there's, there's, there's the scope here is huge because we talk a lot in education about expectations of, of pupils and you know if they come from a certain family you have low expectations or high expectations so there's loads of work that's been done to counter that mm. but there it still does exist in education to yeah. a degree um, I guess it can help both raise expectations but also for some students who you think you're, you're being lazy or you know you know, you, you, your profile, for example, without the genetic stuff, but you, the, the way you're, you've been brought up should, should suggest that you're you know, a lot further ahead than you are, and it could actually be quite helpful for those students. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, yeah, I, th I think it, what I would hope is that by thinking about individual differences and understanding that individual differences have a genetic basis, we could lead to more understanding educators who are more sensitive, more tolerant to diversity in their classrooms. Um, equally, I would have to admit that there's a risk, um, exactly the same as the free school meals risk, that if you say this child is at risk of struggling or, or not achieving highly, that you could reduce your expectations of mm. that child and that would be equally wrong. Mm. So it's, that's one of the things I think we need to assess and prepare for and make sure it doesn't pan out like that. And when you tell teachers, uh, I know you do a lot of work in, uh, with teachers, when you say you know, individualised learning, do, does, does horror appear on their face thinking a differentiated lesson for 30 different students or are they quite embracing of it? Do, do they see it practically working? Well my impression is that it seems a bit utopian okay. because, because it is. I think um, teachers will tend to feel well, of course, if I had all the pairs of hands and all the time in the world, then I would be able to personalise things more mm. for children in my class. And I have every sympathy for that. If you've got 30 children in front of you, there's only so much you can do. And there's only so much you can know about each of those mm. children and what, what's possible or what might be holding them back. So, um, yeah, I think the personalised education agenda fell out of favour before we wrote G is for Genes mm. and I think that's probably largely for practical reasons, um, maybe some misunderstanding of what it, went, what, what it meant. Um, I think there was also a great hope that technology would solve the problem yeah. um, and I still sort of feel that it should be able at some point to partially solve the problem at least as it gets better but the research in that area hasn't been especially strong mm. or successful. And so one of the things we suggested in G is for Genes was that it would be really great if every child had a key worker that met them before they started their school journey and was a consistent adult throughout their time at school so that they knew something of what that child, what that child's background was, what they were capable of, mm. when things were going wrong. The child was 
not progressing or was be behaving out of character in a way that classroom teachers can't tell because they don't have the same child year on year, certainly yeah. in primary school. Um, and I still think that might be a really useful way of not personalising the curriculum but having a personal awareness of a child's experience at school and what's working and what isn't and being able to communicate that to teachers and parents and people involved in the child's education. And I know that Scotland is working towards something a little bit like that. That seems to me to be a, a really great move. And I guess like you need a school-based intervention uh, policy and schools need to do things and teachers do, but you've also spoken about policy and, and on a national level about uh, an equity, I guess, or, of, of routes forwards, and be that, you know, university at the moment is, is still the pinnacle mm -hmm. of, of, you know, and everything else becomes second best. Do you want to talk a bit about what you think could be done at that level as well? Yeah, I think this is a major problem that we have as a society. So if we accept that there are huge individual differences in all of the traits that are relevant to choosing what we want to do with our lives as study or employment and how successful we are as we go forward and do that and if we embrace that diversity and say that partly for biological reasons that's the way that we are then the only way we can genuinely embrace it is if you have diversity of outcomes mm. if you have enough things that every that if you have enough opportunities for everybody to find a niche that's a good fit for what they like and what they're good at. And at the moment, we do funnel children towards university and we take a pride in it. Mm. We, 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 we boast when we have um, a higher level of children going to university, whether or not that matches what they want to do with their futures, whether there's a, a job that they would like that they can get after their degree we kind of see university as the end goal. I think we need to see, take a much more lifelong perspective, see what, how people want to earn their livings, how, how they can best use the skills that they have. And so, I mean, we've made lots of moves towards a decent apprenticeship system, but we're not there. Mm. There are some pockets of really good practice, some companies are doing really good work, but as a government and as a society, I think we simply don't have enough options um, for everybody to find their niche, to find a life that fits them and that they can be satisfied, happy and fulfilled in, that they can be successful on their terms rather than our very narrow, arbitrary terms of, did you go to university? Yeah, I was going to say actually, there's, there's a, uh, Michael Merrick actually, a, a teacher in Cumbria, has written for us about before. There, there's there's this feeling that aspiration is equated to a certain goal. And yeah. That aspiration itself is rarely individualised. You know, that you, it's an assumption that if you aspire to work in your local garage, that means you must not have had proper access to the other options, rather yeah. than you've seen those other options and gone, that actually that is what I want to do. Yeah, I think I think it's a genuine problem. So, I think when our focus is on something a little bit um, intangible like social mobility can we get people to have to go to the level of education above their parents to the professional level level above their parents um, it becomes a bit meaningless what i think is important is ensuring we have equality of opportunity so that every child in the land has the opportunity to 
be an engineer or a hairdresser or a barrister, they're, they're aware of what's out there because we know there's diversity in that. Not all children from all backgrounds even have the same exposure to what there is, the things that they could aspire to do. But if they do have that same exposure and they have a genuinely equal opportunity to go for it, then beyond that, see what happens. Let people choose what they want to do. People, individuals are usually the experts on themselves. Yeah. And if they're well supported and genuinely have e equal opportunities, they will choose to do different things. And we don't offer enough things for them to choose at 16, 17, 18 at the moment, in my, in my view. That's not really a behavioral genetics view, that's my view. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my final question then is there's a big uh, movement in the SEND community to um, not have a label on a, on a child and to say, you know, there are schools that will not tell the teachers what condition or challenge or, or disorder a child might have. They will say, that's your child, assess that child, and that's how you teach them. Mm -hmm. Do you foresee that being a challenge to your GPS score or a genetic influence in education where they say, why we why we don't need that information? We 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 will assess this child for who they are, and we'll ignore that. Is that is that something that might happen? Is that something that you would welcome, not welcome? I would largely welcome it. I, I'm very much in favour of teaching the child you see in front of you, if you have sufficient time and resource to properly get to know that child and their needs. Um, if you don't, then actually having some diagnostic information, a label. That just the fact of being put in a group that needs extra support is probably necessary. But if that's not the case, then absolutely treat the child in front of you. I um, listened to the interview you did a little while ago with Maggie Snowling on dyslexia oh, yeah. and how actually in those early in the earlier foundation stage, a child who is having difficulty with reading needs extra support and yeah. it really doesn't matter why they're having difficulty with reading they're just having it so do the intervention yeah. then so I'm very much in favor of it but a bit like my utopian idea of um, personalizing the curriculum for everybody I'm not sure how realistic it is for teachers to know the children well enough to not miss some of their needs and in that situation, yeah. a GPS score is actually a, a one tool of many to be helpful. Yeah, very. I mean, very definitely one of many and not the most important one, mm. but it might add a little bit of extra information. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Cheers.